This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Coming strong with another edition of Longhorn Blitz with Horns 24-7. I am Jeff Howe. Let's not waste any time. Let me bring in the rest of the team. He is the master of the soundboard, the drop machine extraordinaire, our lead research analyst on Longhorn Blitz, and a daily fantasy guru. He is Matt Butler. How are you, sir? Doing pretty well, man. How about you? I, I'm not doing as as well as you are because you told me you uh you you were all over the Dukies on Monday night. Oh yeah, the Dukies they came through last night. Clemson's looking like Texas a decade ago. It's almost a carbon copy, but it was crazy. Riley Leonard and those Duke running backs they were getting the edge. They were the best athletes on the field, and Clemson they couldn't chase them down. Nothing, uh, nothing to get your juices flowing like ACC football, huh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> A man who didn't play in the ACC, uh, uh, the third member of our team, he played in the Big 12 back when it was the old divisional format. Uh, and, uh, hey, he he won or shared three Big 12 South titles, got him some jewelry. But now he wears many hats in his professional life. But for the purposes of this podcast, he is our lockdown corner here on Longhorn Blitz. Lifetime Longhorn, 2002 UT All-American, 2002 semifinalist for the Jim Thorpe Award. Fourth-round draft choice of the New York Giants back in 2003, spent his NFL career with the Giants, Lions, Bears, Bucks, Broncos, and a year with the Hamilton Tiger Cats of the CFL. When he was done with football, he got himself back to Austin, Texas, and the 40 Acres where he earned his degree. Whenever that T-ring comes back in, we will make sure he wears it proudly. Nevertheless, he is a card-carrying member of DBU, and when you get that All-American honor recognized by the NCAA, they make sure you get one of those black cards. Number 21 in your program, number one in your hearts, Mr. Rod Babers. Thank you for the intro, brother. I appreciate it, as always. Still, uh, still busier than a fruit merchant, I guess, huh, Rod? So that's hey, what man. your days entail this week, this time of year. On the grind, man. On the grind. There's no, there's no other way to be. How you do anything is how you do everything. Yes, <laughs> I, I like, I like the fruit merchant because if you think about it, like if you're selling fruit on the corner and suddenly people stop buying fruit, you got to go to where the people are. So, figure a fruit merchant probably stays pretty busy. I kind of like hey, that one yes. when I heard it. I like that rationale, man. I like yeah. that reason. Makes sense to me. Uh, we're not talking about uh, fruit, but we are going to talk about food because we got to talk about Texas beating Rice 37-10. And we'll talk a little bit about the game specifically, but let's be honest, it's Alabama week. So we're going to focus more on Texas and Alabama because very rarely do we get a matchup like this. That'll change next year when Texas goes to the SEC. And not that you get Bama every week, but you get something really fun to dive into every week. Uh, but let's go ahead and kind of big picture on the win over Rice I'm in the process of writing uh, my three things I know, three things I think column at, at Hornets 24-7. And, you know, uh, <laughs> it's funny. I had this discussion with somebody. Actually, it was with Eric Henry, my coworker, in the press box because everybody was buzzing about Colorado TCU. Colorado, oh, my gosh, Dion won. And, and it's great for Colorado. Like, I I didn't I, – I thought they were going to be like a one, two, maybe three-win team this year. And now playing Nebraska this week, they got a chance to start 2-0. But I thought, you know, I said this out loud to Eric. I said, you know, what Texas Notre Dame was in 2016, that could be Colorado TCU in 2010 and 2023. Like, we could look up a few weeks from now and realize, you know what, uh, both these teams kind of suck. And, you know, maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't. But the bottom line is, we should have known that that Notre Dame game, I, I was thinking about that too. That that was my all-time example of, man, don't try to make wholesale conclusions after a season opener when you're in the heat of the moment and you're a prisoner of the moment. Don't try to think that and extrapolate that over, over 11 more games and think this is what the team is going to be. But uh, so I was thinking about that Notre Dame game, but here's my deal, and I, and I mentioned that to try to look at how should Texas fans view this opener. Right. How do you view the opener? Are you viewing the opener that are you disappointed? 
Are you uh, kind of on the fence, 50-50? Uh, are you thinking that eh, it's it's rice? It doesn't matter. They'll be good down the road. Here's how I would couch it, though. Did did you feel like Texas played to a standard? That and and I asked Sark about this the Monday before the game. Like, what is the standard? And he described kind of what the standard is. And I would say, quite frankly, numbers aside, situational football aside, to me, and Rod, I'll start with you. That's how I would boil it down to. We can get in, in granular on this, but to me, it boils down to. And I'm, I apologize for rambling, but you can't make wholesale the wholesale conclusions about a team based on an opener. But you can safely say. You can be disappointed because Texas didn't play to a standard on Saturday. Uh, yeah, I mean, I offensively. Yes. Right? We're talking about the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, the first half. Yes. First half, offensively, they did not play to a standard, and they didn't play to expectations. Defensively, I think most Longhorn fans, including myself, are really happy what they saw defensively. This, I would just say defensively, I think Texas – was really impressive offensively it's obvious that they still got some things they got to work on and I think that's why Sark was a little agitated and irritated during the press conference uh the Monday press conferences because I think that he watched the film after the game he wasn't as agitated or irritated he seemed uh, a bit annoyed after uh he watched the film I think and he saw some of the 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 ways that the offense may have been disappointing and i, I think there was more and he it wasn't just one aspect of it i think that was more than one aspect of it that he didn't like even with the vanilla game plan and even with them not necessarily scheming rice up he wanted to see his team still go out there and play like you said to a standard and they did not do that offensively yeah, and I mean, it's also knowing the bearing of what this next game means, and you'd really like to have seen that team just coming out and firing on all cylinders. Like, in my mind, like the penalty, like the best season opener I can ever remember, of course, was that 05 year where, I mean, it's just a team that comes out looking like a machine. So that's what you always envision as a Texas fan, but it's not necessarily a reality. And whenever, like, say the same issues that, like, we were worried about was a offensive line and particularly the one hole in the offensive line. And in the first half, you saw some of the same issues there. And then you just didn't see the sharpness. It was like they were at the tipping point, but then, there'd be some mistake made and weren't able to go and capitalize or move the change or keep it into where you knew if you're playing against a much better team, this could be really, really troublesome. It was very good to see the way the third quarter played out. And they sort of was how I bet they wish they would have opened the season, but you know, you survived that first half, but yeah, that's also why Sark was probably quite perturbed. I think he was also uh, annoyed with himself too. I mean, I, I the truth is his play calling in the, first half was a little erratic honestly considering what what the offense was going through and what they were dealing with and what he claims rice the challenges rice presented to him i don't think he called a good game in the first half no honestly i think it was i think it was a badly called i think uh, amongst all the problems in the first half offensively he was one of them sorry that's one of them the the fourth down that they failed on the first drive um, I I understand the thought process of going for it there, but the, I didn't like the play call. I didn't like the execution. And quite frankly, if you were if you knew you were gonna go for it right there, you needed to have something better called. Otherwise, just punt the damn ball. Exactly. There you go. Especially with the way your defense is playing. Yeah. <laughs> if you talk about complimentary football all the time, hell, in that case, if you ain't got something better, just punt it and. And maybe you're saying you don't want to show off your really creative, exotic calls because you got Bama next week. Okay, that's the case. Then punt it. Yeah. Be yeah. Va- be be vanilla. Like, be conservative. We get it. Then punt it. Uh, he didn't. And yeah. So I, I would say I, I'm not saying it, you know the overall game plan in the game was bad. I I just think that among the issues, some things I didn't like about Sark's play calling, like the offensive line. We get it, right? I mean. I have been talking about it on this podcast and on any platform. Anybody will listen to me that everybody, every Longhorn fan needs to watch the Baylor game, right? I said it on here multiple yeah. times. You need to go watch that Baylor game, man. I watched all the sacks and that pressure packages from Dave Veranda. Uh, you know, they were, they were really, really, you know, effective. Like they, he fig- he figured something out. He went deep diving and he figured something out. And essentially what he figured out was 
if you force this offensive line in passing situations to have to communicate post snap, all right, and you have and you force them to have to pass off defenders in pass protection post snap, they're going to struggle. That they just that that's why he got five sacks, and four of those five sacks were either what I call what no, I call everybody calls simulated pressures, which is mm-hmm. you make it look like a blitz. It looks, smells, talks, walks, looks like a blitz, but it's not a blitz. It's a simulated pressure. But you send in four guys instead of five, which makes an official blitz. But the offensive line doesn't know which four guys you're sending. And when you have when you combine that with what they call amoeba fronts, which is when you line up seven, eight guys all across the line of scrimmage and you send four and you're dropping three or sending three and dropping four, whatever combination, the offensive line doesn't know until the ball is snapped what combination you're sending. And you force them to have to communicate post snap to try to pass off those defenders. And Texas had a hard time with that in the Baylor game. Baylor, by the way, Dave Aranda got that from Alabama. Alabama had three sacks versus Texas, and two of those were simulated pressures. What Dave Aranda added was the amoeba pressures, all right? He added the amoeba element to it, or what they call ghost fronts to it. What Rice added to that, because Rice basically studied both of those, or at least studied Dave Aranda's game plan, they took all of that, and then Rice actually added second-level blitzers or second-level rushers who also are delayed and then they also run twists and stunts, which mm-hmm. is another issue with them in terms of you, you're forcing them to pass off defenders in pass protection. So all of those concepts are going to work against the offensive line because you're going to force them post-snap to communicate and pass off defenders. And they did a poor job of that in the Rice game. And they had a poor job of they did a poor job of that in the Rice game. You know, you can project that they're probably going to struggle in it, struggle with it versus Bama and Sarko's freaking out because you got a week to fix it now. And I know you worked on fixing it in the months of the off season, five, six months of the off season you had. And if you ain't fixed it then and rice found it and Rod B been talking about it for six months, well, it's pretty damn obvious that the blueprint is out. Yeah. Yep. And that's where, when you have the youth that you add in where you have some guys that have some experience last year, but not even necessarily the same group. And you can have that type of confusion or miscommunication because you got to be reading the same thing, all of it in your minds without necessarily communicating those things. And when the pitcher's changing every single play, it makes you really have to be spot on and any mistake is going to cause a hole in that front. Rod, I'm glad you pointed that out because that was my big takeaway was the second level pressures that Rice was sending. And I, I watched, you know, I, I ended actually last night ended up watching uh, Alabama, Middle Tennessee and Kevin Steele. Kevin Steele dialed up some of those second level pressures and they're, you know, they're looping guys and, and they're twisting and doing everything. But they'll, you know, they'll cross up the backers. They'll just do, you know, those a get those double a gap gut blitzes. I mean, they'll they'll bring pressure. Alabama will from the second level. I thought Rice just did a really good job of executing their blitzes. You mentioned the, the delay blitzes and and the fact that this O-line didn't communicate. Well, I, I think that what's the play that sums that up the best. Go back and watch the sack that Kelvin Banks gave up, which if you look at it at first glance, it's like, oh, man, Kelvin Banks got beat. No, if you look at it, he he believes his job is supposed to be initiate contact with a defender, pass him off to Hayden Connor. Well, Hayden yeah. Connor is helping Jake Majors double team somebody and the freaking B gap is is wide open. The guy just yeah. runs right through it unblocked. And if you watch that play, you can see Kelvin Banks. I don't know. I don't know if the TV copy showed it. I know the stadium replay I watched showed it. You see Kelvin Banks turn around and look toward Hayden Connor and just kind of put his hands up, like, "What the heck, man? Like, I'm I'm doing my job." I, that's me kind of projecting a little bit, but that to me encapsulated right there the issues with the offensive line in the first half was that one sack right there. It's great point. by your best by your best player and your best lineman. He gave it up, but it was a result. And I heard him talk to the media yesterday. Um, or at least I watched it on YouTube and Kelvin Banks, when he was asked about what went wrong, he said communication. Yeah. We didn't communicate as Matt just pointed out, uh, you know, astutely that it's not actual vocally communicating. What you mean by communication is they're all on the same page. They all see the same thing and they all adjust to it in the same way. Um, and that's not what happened. So yeah, you want to communicate pre-snap, but what they're doing is they're making them adjust post-snap 
And you're right. That's what. So everybody's adding their own little twist to it. Bama's gonna add a twist too. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, Bama used simulated pressures, and Dave Aranda added the amoeba fronts. Rice has thrown in like you throw out the second level defenders coming in rushing, the second level pressures. So Bama's gonna add something else, but at least now they they have the blueprint. And like I said, Texas they got to figure out a way to fix that and do it. So now. Now, Sark could acknowledge that it's a weakness. This is the thing about Sark, right? Sark could acknowledge, all right, you know what? My O-line right now, they suck at picking up twists and stunts. They suck at being able to pass off defenders in pass protection. So I need to avoid putting them in that situation as much as possible. In the Rice game. Thank you, Rod. You had had your your average yards to gain on third down was 8.9 and a lot of that was the play calling and what first of all you first of all you ain't got Bijan and Rojo that's that that would put everything into perspective Sark's got to realize that so when Sark decides he wants to we all know he's a big game hunter and he's going hey man I need to take my shots right I'm, I'm a big game hunter um, and he wants to take those shots specifically on first down, right? I went back and looked at the numbers. Hell, 48% of your deep balls last season came on first down. Sark's obsessed with throwing those deep balls on first down. And what that does, unfortunately, and by the way, there were six deep balls, 20 yards or more in this contest versus Rice, four of them on first down. Mm-hmm. And only I believe only one of those were in the second half. So we're talking about the first half here mostly. And when you throw it on first down and you don't connect because you're bad at it, let's all admit now, Quinn Uris is has a golden arm, but unfortunately that golden arm does not mean he's great at the deep ball. It's okay. All right. There are a lot of quarterbacks that aren't great at the deep ball. It's just a data point. He, that's part of his the weakness in his skill set. He's got other strengths. The strengths are actually the short intermediate game, but Sark, that kind of makes him incompatible with Sark because Sark wants the deep ball. And Sark probably thought he's got the golden arm. He'll be able to complete the deep ball. The truth is, yes, he's got the golden arm, but the deep ball is not a strength for him. And I think it's pretty obvious. We got a sample size to show that. So you're inefficient and ineffective on deep ball. You went over on the deep ball. But what that does is it puts you behind the chains. So now you're second and 10. And then you decide, all right, I got to run it. I don't want to throw it three straight times. So you run it on second down and you get very little yardage. And that's how you end up with. 8.9 yards to gain on average on third down. And that's your money down. And you said you wanted to get better at money downs. And were they good at money downs in this game? No. Third and fourth down, there was seven of 18 because you are not helping your quarterback. You are not doing your offense any favors with your addiction, your compulsion, your obsession with the deep ball. Now, I'm not saying you can't throw it, but how about don't throw it on first down? How about you throw it when you're second and short, second and medium, third and short? Because you like to go for it on fourth down anyway, so third and short, certain parts of the field, throw the deep ball. But throwing it on first down like like he does, I think it really hurts his offense and puts them severely behind the chains. Hopefully, he is just, you know, throwing that out there for Alabama, and he's not going to do that in the game versus Alabama. I think if he does, it could end up, you know, once again, putting them behind the chains. And once again, this goes to Sark's obsession, right? It's like he's Pookie from New Jack City's. He's Tyrone Bigham. Like, I got to have that deep ball, baby. I, I need it. I need it. He's, he's addicted to it. And when he doesn't get it, because he thinks it's so pivotal and integral to his offense, he starts, he starts feeling what I call play calling insecurity, where he starts questioning whether his play, his offense is inadequate. Because if he don't have deep ball, then it's an inadequate offense. Now, we don't think that, but he thinks that. Mm-hmm. And then he, starts, then he starts chasing the deep ball. Right. And you want to make big plays, not chase big plays. And when you start chasing big plays, like TLC said, don't go chasing waterfalls. Stick to the rivers and the lakes that you used to. He likes to chase waterfalls and you can go right down, right down yeah. off the cliff doing that. And this is where this weekend's matchup is going to be really interesting because all the numbers you brought up right there, Rod, are spot on and talking about the percent of deep balls on first down. Yet when you look at Texas's success, now this is last season, but when you look at Texas's success on first and second down, the percentage of first downs gained, Texas still, because they were so explosive with their skill players, players like Bijan and Rojo, or being able to throw the ball and get back, what you did, you get nothing on first down, but still be able to get back by having an explosive offense. Texas was fifth in the country on percent of first downs that came on first or second down. It was 73.6%. And oddly, Alabama's only weakness 
on defense. Nothing's weak. Everything's average or way above average, except for they were 88th in the percent of first downs that they gave up on first or second down. They're a great third and fourth down defense. They're fourth in the country in third and fourth down defensive success. It was Texas on third and fourth down offensive success was mediocre to bad, 59th. So Texas, not a good third and fourth down offense, but Bama, a great third and fourth down defense, but it's totally inverted. And it's crazy that it's inverted that Texas could get so many first downs on first and second downs, being fifth in the country with 73.6%, while still not being successful on that deep ball. And it's because Texas's offense last year was so explosive. You lost some playmakers, so who knows if you can be that explosive. But he's going to be tempted to do it because Alabama's only weak point is them giving up so many damn first downs. 68.6% of the first downs that they gave up came on first and second down, and that was 88th in the country. So I'm afraid he's going to be tempted to be going after that because he knows there's such a good third and fourth down defense. Well, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm glad you guys brought brought up some of the stuff he did. You know, this reminded me, Rod, I went back and looked at it. I'm actually, again, this is part of, part of what I'm writing for my column. That, that was the most – that was the number. Of all the numbers, like you can look at the fail fourth down conversions. You can look at red zone settling for field goals. That 8.9 was the number that disturbed me the most because I went back and looked at it, and I remember us doing a podcast two years ago after the Louisiana game going into Arkansas, and they were 8 for 15 on third down. And on the service, we like, oh, man, they were really good on third down. And my argument at the time was, yeah, but look at their average to go distance. It was 7.9 in that Louisiana game. And I'm like, dude, if you go to Fayetteville and you're living in third and eight plus, this can be a long night. And yep. lo and behold, Texas was, I think, uh, what were they? Four for 13, I think, on third down at Arkansas. Yep. Uh, yeah, so that's that's not going to cut it. And to Matt's point, Matt, that's exactly what I was going to say. Last year, you could take those shots and turn around and either hand the ball off, throw a screen, a swing pass, whatever. Man, Bijan and Rojo bailed you out a lot of times last year when you got behind the chains to either get you back on schedule or just go ahead and move the sticks, give you a fresh set of downs. You don't have that luxury this year. And Rod, to your point overall, that I've made mention of that time and again, and I've talked about it. I was talking about it to to, to Eric and, and to Chip and the press box on Saturday. And I, and I even mentioned it last year. You know, we knew the offense. I, I figured if this offensive line was going to have an issue, it was going to be up the middle because – Jake Majors is a, a really good dude and has played a lot of football, but there are just some times where he's going to be, he's going to, the matchup is not going to favor him. And, and I think this coming Saturday is going to be one of those. And Hayden Connors got his weaknesses and DJ Campbell starting for the first time. Your weaknesses are going to be up the middle. And you kind of, if you're Sark, you should have an idea of what Quinn does well and what he doesn't do well. We can talk about, oh, it was the O-line's fault. It was Quinn's fault. And sometimes, sometimes if you're a play caller, man, you just need to call a, a quick game or something to help your guys out. Like you need to be more aware. Like he don't, did in the second half. Yeah, but I think it, yeah, in the first half, it seems like you're just burying your face. It feels like he's just burying his face in the call sheet. That's what he did Saturday, and just just kept calling what he felt was going to work. And it's like, dude, y'all haven't picked up a blitz this entire half. Why would you think something's going to change now? But to your point, Rod, they made the adjustment after halftime. We saw the offense flow better, and they did what mm -hmm. they do. But and if Sart if Sart does that again against Alabama, they're it, it's because it's a road environment, it could snowball on you really fast. If you, yep. take, and the same thing with Quinn, Quinn mentioned it after the game. He's like, I took long to, too long to settle down. If Sark takes too long to make adjustments and Quinn takes too long to settle in on Saturday, do you could be down 14, 17, 21, nothing before you wake up. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like I, at this point, I know Sark, he wants to have that deep ball as a, you know, a, a, a lethal weapon <laughs> within the offense, forcing the defense to defend every dimension of the football field. I get, I get the the thought process. I, I get the mentality and the philosophy. I do. But what, what what do I always say about football? Football and life are constant struggles, deciding between what you want to be and what you need to be in order to survive. Mm -hmm. I know what you want to be, Sark. I get it. Trust me, and I think it's beautiful. And Sark. There's that that there's also the psychological element. He wants to strike fear in the hearts of uh, the defense. And as a defensive back, I totally get that because that I, when you play with fear, it makes you a different player. You're hesitant. You know, mm -hmm. you're you're you you play with a you know a little bit a bigger cushion as a defensive back when you're thinking about that deep ball. 
Um, but right now, it's pretty obvious to me, if I was an evaluator scout, I would say that one of the weaknesses for Quinn Ewers is that he's not a great deep ball thrower, period. It's okay. All right. It, there, I'm sure that's been on the scouting report for other NFL quarterbacks, but there's still other dimensions of the football field. There's the short game, the quick game, quick game, quick game, quick game, the RPO game. There's your intermediate area of the football field. And I think, sorry, I, I believe in the Bama game, you're going to see a different offense where he's going to start working the short to the intermediate game and then let the deep ball kind of come a little bit more naturally. Because the truth is, he's forcing it now. He's, a, he's yeah. just. He's forced yep. when you're over when you're over six versus Rice and Rice's secondary is actually a strength. They got good players in the secondary, um, but now you're so damn predictable. I remember the watching the broadcast of the Alamo Bowl. The uh, broadcasters they they clearly said and they said the defensive coordinator from Washington said uh, Sark doesn't have patience to come to march all the way down the field using the underneath passing game, the short quick game, and the intermediate passing game. He doesn't. You can give that to him because at one point on that series, on that drive, he's going to take a shot. And if you defend the shot, he gets behind the chains. And then once he's behind the chains, yeah. then he's in a predictable pass situation. And that's when you can, you can go to work. So he's in a sense, Sark is a little bit, his, this, you know, this, uh, this, this not proclivity. I guess like it's more, it's more of a compulsion for him not to D ball. It is starting to affect, in my opinion, his play calling because it's in, it's, it's not compatible with your quarterback, Sark. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what he does well. <laughs> yep, and when you look at the numbers, uh, just you talking about the quick game, and the quick game something that you see the offense just seems to flow. You're able to keep the chains going, and Quinn seems so comfortable. And when you add on top of it, it was something that I talked about last season, and this week it was the same story for Quinn. You know, he's really good against the blitz. And last year, his passer rating when blitzed was 97.7. What happens when you're blitzed? The defense is giving you an answer. They're yep. sending somebody so you know the destination. So when he wasn't blitzed, his rating dropped by like 15 points. Last year, Quinn did not throw a pick the entire season against the blitz. Seven touchdowns. No interceptions. Well, what happened in game one? He was 12 for 15 for 211 yards and three touchdowns, no picks. Another very interesting part, his A dot, his depth of target was 7.6. But when he was blitzed, he was 7 for 16 for 49 yards, and that depth of target was 15.1. That's like double what the other one was, and that's because not only More in those double, occasions yeah. – yeah, you're sitting back and about to uh, observe the defense. You have time, but also it make doesn't simplify the process for him. It makes him start thinking. And like you were saying back there earlier, Rod, it's about reacting. And Texas already looks comfortable in the quick game. And same with Quinn looks comfortable in the quick game. And it's because the defense is giving you the answer. And whenever that's taken away from you, it gives that – chance for say maybe a big play because you have the time but it also gives a chance for a bad decision so that's where I'm really afraid of Bama and Bama is going to be well scouted and Bama is going to know man that offensive line's weak up front we don't need to send anybody extra if our front four can get to Quinn and he's going to have all day back there he's going to maybe make a mistake so that's where we need to see if you're going to be committed to that quick game yeah that's why the simulated pressures work so well because yeah, it looks like a blitz, but it's not a blitz. So you have everybody on the offense, including Quinn, thinking blitz, and then you drop. So you still have the numbers, and all he sees is, damn, the passing windows I thought would be there aren't there. He holds the ball a little bit longer. Pass rush gets home. You see, it's all connected. It ain't just one yep. thing, dog. It's yeah. all connected. They they're playing games with Quinn too. That yeah. free rushers, he's thinking about all day. He's like, oh man, I got free rushers. They blitz, right? That's what. Okay, so they blitz. I got, I got to worry about this free rush. Okay, well, and then they, then that guy doesn't come. You're like, oh, I got a little bit more time, but the windows aren't where I thought the windows would be. And boom, your twist and stunt gets home. So yeah, you, you don't want to blitz Quinn. I agree with that. You don't want to blitz him. You just want, you want to pressure him with twists and stunts and other concepts like amoeba fronts and simulated pressures. Yeah, yeah. Because right now his passer rating for his career is over a hundred, and he has ten touchdowns. In Blitzed. Yeah, to me, Rod, what you said right there, that's kind of where, where I'm at. It's all connected. And to anybody that would ask me, okay, what was wrong with the offense in the first half? You know, especially with Quinn taking some sacks. And, you know, I know one, he kind of had, had he kind of rolled out and got tripped up. The turf monster got him or whatever. But 
it's it's not just that the O-line sucked and it's not just that Quinn, you know, couldn't process it or I don't want to say couldn't process. That's not fair, but that he was having some issues seeing some things. And I'm not going to say that it was Sark's play calling. It's all of it, man. It's all of it together. Like it it's Sark's obsession with the deep ball and, you know, how Quinn processes things and the communication issues up front. They all go hand in hand into why you were that ineffective against Rice. And that's the kind of stuff that that all has to get cleaned up. I will say this, though. One thing I did like, Rod, that I thought, and we knew this, we've talked about it, you you harped on it, and, and, and you know, we, we've seen it. I thought their RPO stuff was really good on Saturday. Mm-hmm. That, that I, I will give, I will give Quinn that. I thought he had, he was, you know, carried out the fake like he's supposed to. He was decisive. The one that I love, I know he hit A.D. Mitchell on the touchdown. The one that I love was the shot he hit over the middle to Jordan Whittington. Like, it was a legit RPO. You could see it was that kind of that backside, that backside glance, and they had the the, the run zone on the front side, and Quinn pulls it, hits just Whittington with a nice shot in stride. I'm like, man, that was that might have been the best offensive play in the first half, period, now that I think about it, just in terms uh, of yeah. intent, design, execution, that was that was nice. I think, and I think I just off the eye test, like we always talk about, hard to track RPOs. I mean, you can try, but it's just it's really tough. You almost have to admit you're going to be inaccurate on that because you don't yeah. know. Sometimes you, you're un- and by the way, Sark has fake RPOs. He admits mm-hmm. he has fake RPOs. They're supposed to look like an RPO, but it's not. So, <laughs> yeah. um, but I I do try to track them, and I noticed more RPOs uh, too. I think just and. What is the RPO, right? It's a combination of the quick game and the run game. So yeah. you just combine the two, and he's really good at the quick game, as we just talked about. And I, I, so I think you should see more of that. I think you will see that. Now, that's one of the natural kind of I- I- ingrained concepts in Sark's offense. That's part of like the DNA of his offense. He calls his uh, passing game literally an RPO-based passing game. Mm-hmm. So he, he's always wanted to run more of them. He was one of the leaders like top three in the country at Alabama in running RPOs. He wants to run more. He didn't trust his quarterbacks when he first got here. Hart Hudson Card and Casey Thompson. Last season, you had a young Quinn Ewers, but now I think he trusts Quinn. You'll see more RPOs. And Quinn's better on that type of deceptive passing game instead of the old school traditional play action, a lot of play action. It involves you turning your back to the the defense. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Quinn's not really good at having to recalibrate after turning your back. RPOs allow you to literally stare right at the defense the whole time. Um, you can keep eye contact with the defense. And I think – and and, and, I, and you, you'll see more of that than the traditional play action pass, which Sark also loves. He loves both of those. But I think now if you're talking about what's Quinn-friendly, RPOs are more Quinn-friendly than play action passes. Mm-hmm. Yep, and yeah. if you look at you know the the third the second half uh, or when the third quarter I'd say it, they looked sharp, but that first half there weren't many bright spots. But one of them that I thought was really really brilliant, just on the way it was schemed up and played, was uh, the motion where you had it's a, the touchdown to Brooks because you had a guy Keelan. We talked last week how amazing he had been in the screen game, one of the most efficient running backs in the country in the screen game last year. He's the guy that's in motion and he play action to. Him him in the screen and that's where because he does have his back turned just quickly because he already knows I already am throwing the ball back to Brooks it's all just the play action that we're spinning and he already knew what he was going to do he wasn't going to have to process anything and it was just set up for perfect for Brooks on the win but that was like the one bright spot of the first half that I was like oh that's beautiful I want to see more of that yeah I also liked in the second half you know one thing if if they're going to send second level defenders on blitzes the the pop pass to the tight end can be it can it can save your bacon and it did the one time they called it uh rice brought pressure and if you want to leave JT Sanders one on one with a the safety then if you're the defensive coordinator go with God and hope the pressure gets there because if it's not what happened on Saturday is probably what's going to happen more often than not agreed yeah Sanders is great yeah so I, I love I like the pop pass I I did like the fact that they they adjusted in the second half. Uh, to to the blitzes, they just handled it much better. And again, you say handling blitzes, that's that's not necessarily that's it's all interconnected. It's not necessarily the offensive line just suddenly got better at communicating. No, Quinn saw it better. Sark helped his quarterback out with the play calling. The receivers were on point. Uh, if you're mm-hmm. JT, you know to turn back real quick and look for that pop pass. So it, you're it, gonna it, get ear hole. 
Yeah, it's all it's all interconnected. It all works together. I, I think too. We got to talk about the defense, but uh, you know the running game. I wouldn't call the running game great. I wouldn't call it prolific, but it was it was good enough to get you the right kind of balance you needed. I, I don't. I don't. It's not ideal balance. It's not like you know you ran for. You threw for 250 and ran for 250, but you know, you take out sack yardage, you were at about 4.8 a carry. So it's not, it wasn't great, but I just felt like it was, it was good enough to serve its purpose and to give you the kind of balance that you needed to not just have everything just bogged down. Uh, yeah. I mean, the truth is, it's going to be running back by committee. Um, mm-hmm. Just, you know, for, for different reasons, injuries, but because of you don't know exactly what what running back is going to play what role at this time. I think Sark still figuring that out. You don't have B. Rojo, who are those, both those guys were every down NFL running backs. You have a very talented room. You just don't have those guys. And we talked about how extraordinary uh, they were at breaking tackles, but also because they could all, both of them can do all, all, almost everything. And not necessarily they were elite at everything, but they could do everything. I'm not even sure that all these backs can do everything, but they do have, elite traits about them and so Keelan mm-hmm. Robinson is going to be involved Jay Brooks is going to be involved you know Cedric Baxter and I love Jaden Blue I think Jaden Blue earned some some playing time Agreed. I do I mean, Agreed. He, he, he has a burst he's got good vision I I love his running style I think he's patient I, I honestly if you go have a running back by committee I think you need to throw Jaden Blue up in there mm-hmm. I do because we didn't hear him yeah. uh, we didn't hear about him a ton in camp but I I mean you it's hard to quantify, but man, he he impressed me the most just yeah. with his assertiveness, his decisiveness, his toughness. Uh, I, I was really impressed with Jaden Blue, and I, I'll say this too, Rod. Uh, one of your mentors, Mike Shanahan. Uh, if Mike Shanahan was watching that game and he was sitting at a desk, that desk got raised about six inches when C.J. Baxter made that cutback run. I'm like, man, that is that is Denver Broncos Mike Shanahan zone running. If you ever saw it, just kind of kind of press the hole a little bit, then see it, boom, stick a foot in the ground, get vertical, and get up the field. That was, ah, that was beautiful. It's a beautiful zone run. And it's unfortunate because he got hurt right after that on that same play, but it was beautiful, that zone run set Baxter ripped off. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It it was nice. It was textbook. You're right. That was definitely the highlight run for the offense. Yep, and if you look at the three backs, I mean, from what we saw briefly from Baxter, he looks like a guy that could just really be one of those premier backs. But as just, I mean, like you're saying right there in the zone scheme, is somebody to replace Bijan in the role that he had last year. And then I already mentioned how Keelan has been so great in the screen game. I pulled up the numbers last year. If you just put in a minimum of uh, 10 tar- or 11 targets, which filters out the guys that barely play, Keelan was third best in the country. Country, only behind to John Henry, who had 23 targets. It was Relique Brown had 18 targets. Keelan Robinson had 22. And Keelan was actually tied with Relique Brown from USC for the second best screen receiver out of all the running backs in the country. And then Jonathan Brooks, we've seen his ability to catch the ball not only in the bowl game, but then again here and both in plays that are not your conventional screen game, ones where he can really show his speed on the outside, but he's also a guy that has great yards after contact as a traditional running back, just running the ball between the tackles. So like Rod said, there's some very good strengths that these young backs can have and that can be magnified in the offense. And what we've seen from Jaden Blue has been impressive too. Uh, the the C.J. Baxter injury, though, doesn't that just kind of encompass like that one play encompass the kind of day it was for the offense? Like he makes this yep. just this great zone run and then, oh, he falls awkwardly out of bounds and he's done for the rest of the day. Like it's like, you know, Two steps forward, two steps back. It just felt like it was that kind of day. Just that kind of day for the offense. Oh, yeah, wow. right as he's about to like break off, maybe get a hundred yard game in his first D one game. Got the biggest game of my career tomorrow, and I fell down awkwardly against Rice. That by, by the way, I had to go look this up. I, I I was pretty sure this was the case. Um, Cedric Baxter was the seat. I keep calling him Cedric. He it's he wants to go by CJ. CJ Same Bat- with Adonai. Instead yeah. of AD, he doesn't want to be yeah. AD anymore. A- Adonai. Uh, Cedric, CJ Baxter is the first Texas true freshman running back to start a season opener since Ricky in 95. Wow. I mean, That's I would have figured, cool. like, man, did, did, did Malcolm Brown or somebody get in there? Like, no, that was like Fozzie or 
Somebody well, and Ricky started at fullback. I don't even think he started at halfback that it was game not too. a tailback. No, I'm just that's why I couch it by saying running back and not being specific because that back then you were, you know, your two tailback offense was your your base offense. You were basing out of, out of 21 personnel. Everybody was, which it makes almost running for a thousand yards of that season as a fullback even more impressive. If Bucky Godbolt had just gotten Ricky his five more yards somewhere, Ricky would have had the the four straight thousand yard season. So <laughs> blame Bucky Godbolt for Ricky not getting a thousand yards as uh, as a true freshman. But and I uh, believe the only other I believe Earl Campbell was the other the true freshman before that that started at running back. Yeah, because you got to remember back in uh I think 73 was the first year the freshmen were yep. eligible. 72 or 73 was the first year the freshmen were eligible uh for varsity. Am I right about that, Matt? Was it 72 or 73? Yeah. It was right one of those two yeah. years where there was that season. I forget, yeah, but that's freshman. You got to remember, freshmen weren't eligible until that. The only other time they were, which is why some of Bobby Lane's records like stand out. Like I thought freshmen weren't eligible. You made freshmen eligible when you had, you know, World War II was going on, and we we're having to send send uh, send boys overseas to fight. Yeah. So yeah, you needed you needed some of those freshmen to to fill out a football team. So that's why Bobby Lane's got some of the records that he does from that point in time. Um, but uh, you know, en- enough about the offense though. Um, I want to talk about the defense. And I actually think one one thing that I, you know, you can look at, and this not only goes for Horns 24-7, this goes for any any media outlet that covers this team. Uh, you're going to be wrong about some things. You're going to be right about some things. And then the things you're, you're going to be wrong, you're wrong on, you're like, man, how did I not see that? But one thing that I think we got pretty accurate on the site is we did our comp- position group confidence rankings. And... In that rankings, we had the offensive line of the nine positions. We had the offensive line at nine, and we had the defensive line at one. And that's because you know, we'd heard all through camp, man, when they when they straight up scrimmage, man, this defensive line is dominating this old line. And I don't want to harp on this, but part of me wonders, man, is the uh, the issue with the offensive line. I know they're saying communication. I wonder if confidence is part of that. And maybe some of that might have snowballed a little bit. You know, they had some struggles early, and I don't know, maybe it was just revisiting some of those scrimmage situations against a really good D-line. But there's a reason why we had the defensive line as the number one, the, the position group we had the most confidence in because, man, after not the drive where they settled for a field goal, but after that second drive when you just saw how violently and consistently <laughs> Murphy and Sweat and Broughton and even Collins were winning, I'm like, Texas can score – 17 points and win this game comfortably like that's how good that defense was playing especially up front yeah no i agree and it was so deep right that's the thing about it they yeah played like 12 defensive linemen i think and there wasn't a drop-off that was i mean you'd expect like oh man this is they're going up against the, the second team guys they're going up against the second group this is why rice is moving the football uh that did not happen at all they went deep and i saw guys make plays man so Tavondre Sweat was a force of nature. Mm-hmm. Looks like he wants to be the lead dog uh, on a D line that's full of that's full of some dogs because you got mm-hmm. Byron Murphy next to him who also has got that dog in him. Those guys can demand a double team. I'm not saying that each of them will demand a double team every play, but if each of those guys, you know, on occasion can demand a double team, that's huge up front. And then you got guys like Alfred Collins who they've been talking about and the buzz has been. I like what. Uh, Vernon Broughton looked like him. I, mean, I mm-hmm. thought he looked actually pretty good. It's already been Broughton. Ethan Burke, the mechanic, mm-hmm. uh, missed a sack. He could have had two sacks in the game if he didn't end up missing the sack. Uh, I thought he played really, really well, too. And, you know, I just they, – they, they're they deep. They're deep on yeah. the D-line. They were deep on the D-line last year. Got two guys drafted, and they're deep again. That's where it starts. And then you got Jalen Ford, who picked up where he left off last year. So I think even the front now – the off-ball linebacker opposite Jalen Ford, you know, you know, looks like that's going to be David Bender. I, I think David Bender played pretty well, but I think they're going to attack David Bender in the Bama game. That's a different discussion. But yeah. I thought I think the defensive front for Texas is going to be a strength, and if that secondary can also be a strength, because I think they will too. Man, this defense could go from good to great. They could be in that conversation. We'll see versus Bama, but they potentially could be that in that conversation. You know where the depth really helps them, Rod? They're they're deeper on the edges than they were last year. And I know it was against Rice, but I want to there's one of those guys I want to give props to. I was expecting nothing from Chris Ross this year. Like I had zero expectations for Chris Ross. And he got in that game on Saturday, man. And again, it was against Rice, but I thought he played pretty damn well the snaps that he played. 
He had a couple really good rushes. He got a couple pressures. So I, we knew they were deep at tackle. Uh, I'm a little more. I'm a. I'm. I'm still very much cautiously optimistic, but I'm. I'm a little more. I got kind of nudged towards being a little more optimistic with the depth they've got at edge when you see Sorrell and, and Burke and we saw a little bit of Justice Finkley that that to me was kind of the story on defense is just overall their depth because you pointed it out Rod and I agree with you like in the secondary I I couldn't tell if it was your safeties if it was Catalan and Taft if it was Williams and Catalan if it was uh you know Williams and and Jaron Thompson like the, the fact that you've had this much competition, and I know you've talked a lot about it, Rod, how much that changed during your time at Texas. I feel like you're in the midst of that now where guys understand in practice, like, look, one bad practice could cost me X number of reps in a game, so I've got to go compete for a job every day I'm out here. And I, I asked you know, Christian Jones and David Bend to some of the guys that they've been around, and they both said, yeah, this is the most competitive camp we've been a part of just in terms of guys having a sense of urgency every day to go out and fight for a job. Uh, I think defense is really where you're seeing that pay off, especially on that back end, man. You, there's just, I didn't see a lot of difference between which DB was out there and who was in there and who wasn't. Agreed. Yeah. Now I thought the, DB, the DBs, because I, ex, I expected them to have some depth. You had Sark talking about, you know, they believe they have four corners of starting caliber, right? And that they mm-hmm. can rotate yeah. those guys, Malik Muhammad and Terrence Brooks and bringing in Gavin Holmes to transfer and Ron Watts. And we know that they've been talking about how deep they were at safety, even going back to the spring, because they like Keaton Crawford, and they brought in Jalen Catalan via the transfer portal. And Jaron Thompson is the elder statesman. And then Jalen Ford's one of the best linebackers in the country. So, like, really, they don't have a – you know, they, it didn't seem to have a lot of holes right now on defense. That off-ball linebacker spot opposite Jalen Ford with David Bender, we'll see. I think Bender – he ended up making some plays. He gave up like one big play, but we'll see. I think teams will attack him. There are not a lot of places to attack Texas. It, we'll see who they trust versus Bama, mm-hmm. right? You play a lot of guys versus Rice, but you ain't going to try out nobody you don't trust versus Alabama. So if he trusts them corners, then maybe you'll see that young buck out there versus Bama. If you don't trust him, you won't see him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we learned that we could probably trust Muhammad seeing him. I mean, that first half, he was the guy that really stood out. But you hit on a lot there in the about the defensive front ride. And some of the guys, it was really impressive to see just not only the depth, but, I mean, Texas ended up with 23 run stops, which means that's when you're keeping basically the offense off schedule. You're putting them off schedule on that play. And you had three from Sweat, four from Murphy, and four – three from Ford, when you combine that together, Tavondre Sweat, I saw PFF put out there, he was a 37% pass rush win rate, led the country amongst all interior D linemen. For a D tackle to be winning on the pass rush 37% of the time, that's going to be demanding some type of double teams. And then when you add on that he had three run stops, just like all around doing everything on the defensive front and the same thing with Jalen Ford. He was the highest graded linebacker in the country for all college football by PFF, which is just keeping off right where he was last season. And then you brought up Benda. Benda ended up in this game being the second highest graded tackler and the second highest run defender on the defense and was pretty satisfactory in every single part, except for in coverage where we already knew could maybe be a bit of a hole for him, but across the board, the depth that they showed, I mean, you really couldn't have asked for more from the Texas defense in regards to individual performances. Yeah. Like to me, I don't know if this is where you are, Rod, for two things. One, I think Alabama you know, watching that Middle Tennessee game uh, and just kind of how how Jalen Milrow operates, this is a game where you would love to have Maurice Blackwell available just to get a little more speed mm-hmm. on the field, a little more coverage ability on the field. Uh, there's that. And then Benda, to me, like, if I look at, like, what, what do you need David Benda to be this year for him to be, you know, an adequate defender to adequately fill that role? I think if he's, you know – if you think about like what Jawan Mitchell was in 2020 and Jawan Mitchell had his deficiencies, like we knew that if he had to cover one-on-one or whatever, similar to Benda, like he's going to struggle. But if he's just straight up dropping in coverage uh, and can handle an area and he's dro- his drop is deep enough, he 
and where he can see everything, then he's probably going to be fine. But his strength is coming downhill. And I, I just think that's yeah. what David Benda is. I just think he's more of a, a downhill kind of C-gap to C-gap type guy, not a guy who you want playing in space. But there's, no, there's going to be times where he has to. Yeah, I think based on the matchup, um, and like you said, this would be a great matchup to have a guy uh, like Mo Blackwell. But they have options, right? They have they got they're deep at defensive back. Uh, they're deep on the D line, uh, not as deep in terms of proving commodities at linebacker. Uh, but Dave and David Vance is a part of that, right? He's he's he, he's a he's a vet, but I don't know how, how much of a proven commodity he is in game action. Uh, but we did see him versus Rice. I like the way he played, but it was Rice. And like I said, there aren't a lot of places on the defense that have the that there are unproven commodities i think ethan burke he'll be tested too uh in that Bama game i think he'll and i think he'll show up um and actually pass the test uh david bender will be tested and whoever that corner is on the the field side they're going to be tested too um and they're going to go after ryan watts a little bit too i you know watched alabama the receivers they don't have any like any of the playmaker first round caliber receivers they had when sark was there or anything but they got some speed they just they just got speed on the outside. And I think what they're going to do is just go a ton of vertical routes downfield. Uh, and they're going to force Texas to have to stop Jalen Milrow as a runner and as a scrambler. I'm talking about on design runs and on scrambles. You will have to account for him. And Sark knows that he even said it on every play. And honestly, I, I even tweeted out, I, I think Bama's going, I think they're going to go empty. I think they're going to go empty. And I think they're going to spread Texas out. And that's, that's that's a very stressful formation to defend anyway. Texas has to, you know, Texas pass rush can be, you know, a little nullified and neutralized to a certain extent that way because it speeds up the clock of the quarterback. You know, it's quick game, so it's easier throws for Jalen Milrow. And you have the element of him being a dual threat quarterback. And that means Texas has got to put a guy on him. And you may put somebody on him, but that also means they got to go one-on-one in the open field with Jalen Milrow, which also is not ne- – ideal and i had some folks who compared jalen Miro to jalen hurts and i totally get the comparison um Mm -hmm. i looked at you know my notes that i had from the super bowl because i took no super bowl and one of my notes was no no formation stresses the defense more uh than empty formation and nothing violates the structural integrity of a defense quite like a dual threat quarterback and conceptually i'm not sure anything in football is more lethal than combining both of those, a dual threat quarterback operating out of an empty formation. That is essentially what Texas will be presented with versus Alabama, in my opinion. Now, we don't know how Tommy Reese's offense is going to operate. Alabama, you know, Nick Saban wants Tommy Reese to have basically his cover version of Nick Saban's offense, which he has been, you know, collecting and accumulating ever since Lane Kiffin took over and and every, every coach, even Sark has added their piece to it. But everybody remembers on this on this podcast and on the radio show after the Alabama game, I told people based on my film study how Alabama won the game and they won it with empty. Yeah. They actually were the they were actually were the first team to show that Texas could be exploited via the empty formation. Remember Bryce Young. Now it was Bryce Young, because he's Bryce Young, the first pick overall, but he was nine of ten in that game. Eight of eight in the second half, he eviscerated Texas via the information. That's how they won that game. That was a schematic adjustment that PK did not have an answer for. And they're the ones who showed UTSA that, hey, you, you should run empty. And UTSA, what they do, they ran a ton of empty. They ran empty, I believe it was 24 plays <laughs> in that game because they were like, hey, man, which I think Will Stein was the offensive coordinator who's now mm-hmm. at Oregon. He's yeah. a clever guy. He was like, no, man, that's a weakness. And, hell, they almost beat Texas running a ton of empty yeah and, and for utsa go, though too it was play it was playing to your strength i mean when you got a veteran like frank harris and a really good yeah but that, that's not why they did it they did it because they saw alabama doing alabama won that game running empty yeah that's why they that's why they did it to that extreme i bet if i looked at utsa plays that running 24 plays of empty is a lot of empty formation and you yeah. go look at uh like i said you compare him to jalen hurts in the super bowl trust me I, i've been keeping up with empty for a long time guys <laughs> you know i have all right i'm the first boy start talking about it around here for a long time even keeping up with texas empty formation and jalen hurts in that super bowl versus uh patrick mahomes and kansas city chiefs they ran empty 12 times averaged over eight yards per play out of empty and he had five rushes for over 50 yards big plays 10 13 27 yard rushes they just found it a little bit too late that was one of their adjustments in the game too I guarantee you, 
I, like I said, I, I looked at the Middle Tennessee game, and there was only one play out of empty formation that that they ran, uh, Bama ran against Middle Tennessee. But you're going to see it versus Texas because I saw it last year. And, by the way, the quarterback versus Rice, the only thing that, that wrote for Rice in that game was empty. It was the only damn thing. That scored their only touchdown running empty formation. It was the only thing that they actually could do with any confidence in that game was empty formation. And they, I think they had an 85-plus percent completion percentage out of empty formation. That was the only thing JT, JT Daniels could do. So if you're watching film from last last week or you're watching Bama, from, who's their next opponent from last year, it all points to running more empty. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, and I'm when you look you. at go, – Go ahead, Matt. No, no, you're spot on. And, yeah, I, I, if you look at the uh, empty formation in the way Bama has been so successful and look at what Texas has been able to do against it. Now, they have the athleticism on the defensive front. And the one thing that I really like that Texas could maybe exploit is the fact that it's for the first time since 2014, you have Alabama starting at left tackle, a true freshman. It's Jaden Proctor. He, if you look at allowed yeah, pressures. Caden Proctor. Oh, Caden Proctor. Sorry, I mispronounced his name, but he's uh, ended up allowing 33% of the allowed pressures last week against Middle Tennessee State. I listened to the 247 podcast for uh, Alabama and they were talking, you know, it's nice to see him out there, but also it's a hole. And that's something that maybe Texas could be able to exploit because like you said, Rod, last week, Bama didn't show the empty because they had no reason to. They went in against the inferior opponent. What they do? They put a tight end out there it, 48 extra times. You had 114 snaps, four tight ends, and there was only 66 offensive snaps. So you're talking about a lot of 12, a lot of 13 personnel. But don't make you think that that's what they're going to do against Texas this week. They're doing that to overpower the inferior opponent. Like Rod was saying, the ability to adjust and understand how to attack Texas. Now, I would hope that they go and try to overpower Texas. That would play into Texas's hands. Last year when they went empty, they had Jamar Gibbs, and we all sit there and watch Bijan, Bijan's uh, transcendent talent. It's like Gibbs went 12th overall in the NFL. Gibbs is one of the best running back prospects that's came out in years as well. So they were able to go empty a lot better or a lot more last season, successfully at least, in having a guy like Bryce Young and having a running back like Gibbs that you can split out this year, not necessarily as athletic at running back, which bodes well for Texas. And then also you have at tight end, it's Nye Black. Nye Black was a guy that was very successful in the first week. He's a very athletic tight end. He's one that they could definitely split out wide, but not your traditional tight ends that you would expect to be great receivers. So when you look at the personnel on this Bama team, empty may be the answer. They just don't necessarily have the skill position guys that they had last season. Because even when you look at guys like Isaiah Bond, he's probably the one to be most feared of. If you look at man versus zone, Isaiah Bond, really efficient. He was like over 2.26 yards per route run against man. And same with Law, who didn't get many snaps, but their other receivers, guys like Jermaine Burton, you know, nobody really instills a lot of fear in you. So at least this year, if they're going empty, it may not be as efficient as it was last year, but it's definitely going to be the answer. Uh, a couple things. Rod, I'm really intrigued that you mentioned the cornerback battles because, you know, Jermaine Burton, at least watching the Middle Tennessee tape, I don't know, they, we know they've moved him around. It seemed like he played almost exclusively to the field side. And again, that could have been just for that game. But have your having your most veteran receiver matched up on whoever that field corner is. It'll, it'll be Terrence Brooks, and, and Terrence Brooks played a lot at the end of last year, but still hadn't hadn't started and played in an environment like he's going to play in on Saturday. Or you've got yeah. Manny Muhammad as a true freshman, and you're probably going to have you know Isaiah Bond or, or Kobe Prentice, one of those other guys, playing to the boundary side, and, and that is those are guys that can give. Ryan Watts, some problems. Matt, to your point, and Rod, this goes. Those are going to be your slot guys right there with Bond and Prentice. They both, like, it was 61% in the slot for Bond last week. Uh, Burton only went inside 20%. But Brooks and Prentice, also guys that can go in. Prentice was in the slot 88% to where it's going to be Bond or Prentice on the field at slot. Yeah, and uh, Corey Brooks was the other guy I was thinking of. But, Rod, I'm with you on the empty. I'm, I'm intrigued about it. When you can add the dual threat element, it makes it real tough. Like we saw that in Texas, we talked about that when we had some of these empty conversations. Like you go back to when Texas under Tom Herman was running empty, man, 
you spread the field out and <laughs> very different than Jalen Milrow. Jalen Milrow will, will run by a linebacker. Bam Bam Sam would run over a linebacker. It's your, you know, you're just, you're skinning the cat, uh, pardon the expression, but a little bit, just a, a different kind of way, but still yeah. the, uh, you know, the, the focus, the intent is the same, but Matt, you're talking about those Bama running backs and, and to tie it back to the empty, that play rod, and I, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. It was that, that game-winning drive Bama had. I think it was the first or second play. Uh, they go empty, and Jameer Gibbs, they just get the matchup they like. It's Jameer Gibbs on Jaron Thompson. Uh, gives a little jab step outside, comes back in, and uh, Jameer Gibbs wins that wins that rep. And all of a sudden, Bama's right around. I think they're like at the plus 40 or the, the minus 40, maybe like 40, 45-yard line. And that set them up. It was going empty formation and getting Jameer Gibbs in a one-on-one matchup. That's exact. That's what you want. That's the kind of stuff that empty can do for you. Which again, with Bijan and Roshan, I don't know why Texas didn't do it more last year. But I digress. But those Bama running backs, Matt, that, that you're talking about, and then you know how much twelve personnel they're going to run. Are they going to try to to bludgeon Texas? I think these two backfields are really similar. Like you look at those Bama running backs, kind of like the Texas backs. They've got guys that I don't know right now. Any of those guys are are just a total package and can do you know everything at a really high level. But I think they've each got something that they can do pretty well. You know, Roydell Williams is going to be more of a guy that can he can thump a little bit. Jace McClellan's going to be your speed guy. So I think it's a little bit. I, I see some some mirror image stuff with these two backfields. That's a good point, and I, I wonder if. You know, Bama has a better idea, and maybe they don't about who serves what role, and, and that you know, backfield uh, running back uh, by committee. Because I think you're right. I think both Texas and Bama have yet to really have the lead back uh, mm-hmm. at backfield. Yeah, um, we got to wrap it up, guys. Any any closing thoughts on this game, Matt? I'll start with you. Uh, other than Texas having to go with the quick game against Alabama, it's just going to be if you can take Milrow to the ground. He's a great guy forcing missed tackles. He was like more than 10 yards per carry after contact last week against Middle Tennessee State, which is just crazy. But like we said, you know, the running backs, say we saw McClellan on one big run last year, and he's a guy of those running backs, I'd say, be the one to fear the most. But the skill guys for an Alabama team, I mean, Texas has the biggest mismatch, Texas skill guys versus their skill guys, in my opinion. But at quarterback, they had that mobile quarterback, and they can totally beat a good defense. Your defense can win, and we saw it last year. Defense won most plays, but at the end of the game, Bryce Young made a play against the defense, and that's going to put fear into you as a fan for the entire ball game till the very end because you never know. Even if you win the play, you may actually not win on the scoreboard because he can beat you. So that's my biggest fear, and that's what I think will really be the deciding difference is if you can take him to the ground. We're recording this on Tuesday, Rod B. You uh, you got anything else that's top of mind for you as far as this one goes? Um, yeah, I mean, I think Bama's going to – I think it'll take some deep shots uh, on this secondary just because Texas will be put in positions where either via the matchup zone or they'll just be in man-to-man because they got to devote resources, as Matt just said, to Jalen Miro. Mm-hmm. You, you got to have somebody you got assigned to him on every run play. And even on the pass plays, that's going to have to be a spy, a 007. It should be a different player every yes. time. It should be the same yes. player every time. That's you got There are spy beaters uh, that are, you know, in playbooks and uh, that are kind of built into uh, to game plan. So if you, you know the spy is every, every down, then you can beat them pretty easily. But if you change it up, sometimes safety, sometimes a nickel, sometimes linebacker, you know, sometimes a defensive end, you change up who the spy is going to be on the quarterback. Uh, I think that helps to confuse Jalen Miro. I've also heard, you know, that he's a he's a well, at least based on the film study, it's not a ton of film study out there, you know, because he's you know he's basically first second year guy, second year guy. Uh, but he doesn't go through progressions. Um, I would be aggressive in taking away his first read. Mm-hmm. I would be really aggressive. In, that's why I think they they like to take shots too. They'll put the tight end outside. And if Texas ends up leaving their corner assigned to them, like Ryan Watts, they'll put the tight end out there and then have all some of their best receivers lined up in the slot and take shots like, um, you know, kind of the, the slot fade. Uh, they like to do that a lot too. And I think they'll when they go empty, they'll put their 
running back and their tight end on the outside for the corners and see if yeah. Texas will adjust by putting their corners on the inside. And right. so watch for that. I don't know if Texas will do that. <clears throat> that's unorthodox. No, that's, that's a great right? point. Yeah. That's, great, that's unorthodox. Great point, yeah. yeah. And also that, that's going to happen with Xavier Worthy. If Kool-Aid McKinstry is going to shadow Xavier Worthy, that's something to watch. Sark is going to figure that out early. Mm-hmm. If they're going to put Kool-Aid McKinstry on Xavier Worthy or if they'll just say, hey, man, we're going to put Kool-Aid McKinstry zero coverage wherever the hell he is on whoever he's playing with. And then we're going to bracket X-Man or road coverage. I don't know what they're going to do. That's going to be a nice chess match, too. Um, so, those, yeah, those are a few things. But, I mean, match right, I think the biggest issue will be how they defend Jalen Milrow as a dual threat and as a scrambler in the, uh, the quarterback run game, design run game. Uh, every time that Bama, every time, but the last five times Bama's lost at home, it's either elite defense or elite quarterback play. There's no way to get around it. So if Texas is going to beat Bama, it's going to be an elite Quinn Ewers or an elite defense. And I think Texas is closer to being elite defense right now than having an elite performance by Quinn Ewers. Agree. In closing, I'll say this. Uh, Matt, you mentioned Caden Proctor. But whichever Texas defensive lineman is shaded to the, to the left side of that Alabama offensive line, and whoever the edge is, whether it's Baron Sorrell or Burke or whoever, Caden Proctor, 6'7", 360. Mm. Tyler Booker, the left guard, 6'5", 352. It's a lot of <laughs> beef, a lot of beef, a lot of meat on the left side of that Alabama offensive line. A and wall Rod, of human. Yeah, and, and Rod, you brought up Kool-Aid McKinstry. One of the matchups to watch for me in this game, as crazy psycho as this might sound, Watch uh, the punters in this game and the punt returners because with Xavier Worthy and with Kool-Aid McKinstry, you've got two guys that, yeah, they can take one to the house at, at any time they touch the ball, but they're also the kind of punt returners, man. They'll live on the edge. They'll watch it and they'll play it off like the third hop or play it, pick it up off the roll. It could it could be a botched punt return that makes the difference in this ball game. I would I would not get up to go to the bathroom in either of these teams are punting the football because that, that could be the play that swings it. That's a good point. So that's all I got. And that's all we've got. Uh, we'll be back next week to talk about whatever happens in Tuscaloosa on Saturday and look ahead to Wyoming. Matt, thanks for everything, man. You're more than welcome. Rod, we appreciate the time and the knowledge. Anytime, brother. Anytime. For Matt, for Rod, for everybody at 24-7 Sports, the 24-7 Sports Podcast family, and the Horns 24-7 Podcast family, you can get each and every episode of The Blitz by searching Horns 24-7 anywhere you get your podcasts. Click that follow button, get every episode when it drops. And thanks to Matt, get all of our archives. Our classic interviews and shows are available on the Longhorn Blitz SoundCloud page. Yep, just type in Longhorn Blitz. For the Horns 24-7 family, for the Longhorn Blitz family, I'm Jeff Howe. Thank you so much for downloading and listening, and we will catch you again on the next episode.